Welcome to the Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. Ah, the end of the year. That special time when we wrap up our work year, start planning for the holidays, and most importantly, turn our attention to Spotify Unwrapped. Some of what makes it engaging is that they quantify things you didn't even think to wonder about. Like, gee, I wonder how many genres I've listened to this year. It's 36. They fill you in on your daily music habits. For instance, I start off my days joyfully with chipper music. By lunch, I'm in the mood for intense, charming kindness. And then I make sure to get ready for bed with an old classic, good vibes, sad boy lit. And there's the irresistible listening personality BuzzFeed style Quizlet result meets astrology. I'm the adventurer, a seeker of sound venturing into the unknown for hidden gems. Who can resist that? The whole thing kind of makes me think, clearly I have to listen more and invest more into what I'm listening to so that next year's data will be even more impressive. But as fun as all this is, there is a quiet, insidious side that's easy to overlook. Because what Spotify Unwrapped is, is a playful face plastered on extreme data collection and optimization. In this case, it feels mostly harmless, but who's to say that one day, an oppressive algorithm might not target people who listen to too much rage against the machine in a year? Could someone's Spotify Unwrapped label them the anarchist? While that probably isn't happening, a lot of apps and tech companies are collecting data that is being used to find lawbreakers or dissidents, even if that was never the intention. If you're a business leader or tech leader, you certainly know that your own website, marketing channels, operations, workflows, customer communications, and just about every other facet of your operation uses data to enable decisions. But at what cost? And what does it mean for us as a society that we have this surveillance approach to, well, just about everything? I always love the chance to bring a little dystopian reality to the forefront. That was Albert Fox Kahn, founder and executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP. We recently had a chat about the state of surveillance in the world today. For decades, we had this debate about the you know massive powers and surveillance infrastructure we were putting in the hands of the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, all of these you know massive organizations down in Washington that could then monitor our electronic lives. But what went uncommented on for many of those years was the fact that we have eighteen thousand police agencies across the United States that are increasingly mini NSAs that have the ability to transform our social media, our cell phones, all the apps that are collecting our location and our electronic lives and transform them into policing tools, into immigration enforcement tools, into weapons against protesters, against religious communities. I call every Alexa wiretap in waiting because it just takes a, a single court order in order to turn these... You know, ubiquitous microphones into a government surveillance tool and really to fundamentally change the nature of our society from an open democracy to something that is far more controlled and closer to the Orwellian nightmare of authoritarian surveillance state. We've seen all of these patterns in the analog age as well. What's different today is that they're able to do it at a much larger scale, not tracking dozens or hundreds, but tracking millions and doing it for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> 
something that's only possible because companies like Google are collecting huge sums of data on all of us. So couldn't these companies just choose to collect less data? Companies are making a profit. Microsoft sells the domain awareness system to the NYPD, which takes in tens of thousands of cameras from around the city, takes in data about our metro card usage, our, our, um, where we are on the roads, information from social media and facial recognition, compiling it all into a, a police nerve center. It includes vendors like IBM, which has done a lot in facial recognition before Amazon, almost all of the leading tech companies have been profiting off of, you know, police surveillance to some extent. And, you know, for the companies that are not enabling the surveillance by selling these products to police, they're often enabling the surveillance simply by collecting the data police depend upon. You know, police send in geofence warrants now by the thousands every year, this new type of warrant, which can allow officers to track every single person in a given space over, you know, days or even weeks through a single warrant. I've been a big proponent of what I call legal firewalls. I acknowledge that there are times when data is going to be physically accessible to police, but it shouldn't be legally accessible to police. Right now, in a lot of cities across the country, the police decide whether or not to use a surveillance technology and basically get the final word. I I found that this becomes one of the most anti-democratic forms of local government because civilian officials and elected representatives are being cut out of the loop. Um, So we work on something called uh, CCOPS laws. uh, This stands for Community Control of Police Surveillance. And with CCOPS laws, you have this change in the power dynamics where suddenly it's civilian officials who decide what surveillance tools are allowed in a community. By changing the uh, approval process and putting elected officials in charge, you can really change the landscape of how surveillance is being deployed today. We're still only at the very beginning of hopefully making progress away from ultra surveillance and hopefully towards regaining a modicum of control over our privacy. The technology, however, has made its way into nearly all aspects of our lives, including our workplaces. Albert explained some of the issues there, namely that a lot of workplace surveillance tech is rudimentary at best and dangerous at worst. Workplace surveillance has just been so frustrating because it's one of the clearest examples of bad tech that doesn't solve a problem but causes a lot of harm. You know, we've all seen the meme of Homer Simpson at a keyboard where there's, you know, a little uh, mechanical device that clicks a key every few minutes. And so he's productive. And that's the level of sophistication for a lot of these tools. But it's creating a lot of danger for employees. It's creating a tool, you know, sets of tools that can be used to harass employees, that can be used to give employers even and managers even more power, that can be used to target union organizers. Technology has long been sold to us with the promise of democratizing. But when you are instinctively turning to surveillance as the answer to every problem, you're you're creating even more concentrated power at the top and, and putting even more employees at risk. For more information about how surveillance tech has warped the workplace, check out our recent episode, Does the Future of Work Mean More Agency for Workers? A part of the issue is that many leaders in the tech industry can't see the forest for the trees when it comes to surveillance and data collection. 
I recently spoke about this phenomenon with Kim Creighton, who is known as the anti-racist economist and is the author of the forthcoming book, Profit Without Oppression, a blueprint for building an anti-racist organization. So much about tech and the narrative has been the false narrative that we're all for good. We care about people, blah, 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 blah. Because so many people in tech just want to pretend we're out here for doing good. No, we're not. How many things have we marketed to the average consumer as this is cool, this is great, like VR, Internet of Things, all these things. And then years later, how harmful they are. But the regular public doesn't know because they still are the narrative of how great this is. Our neighbors have rings and all this other stuff. Our harm is scaling exponentially, and we have a a crisis management issue that other industries don't have. As part of her work, Kim has created a list of guiding principles for people in the tech industry who may not realize or may not be completely convinced that their products are doing harm as to what their responsibilities are to their clients and users. Tech is not neutral is the number one thing because once you get to the word neutral, I'm sh- I'm shutting off because I need to we need to stop right there and have a conversation about what that word means. It means absolutely nothing because there is no such thing as neutral. Even in science, we may say there is no neutral. There's always a push and pull. There's always a give and take. There's always something. There is no neutral. And humans definitely are not neutral. We all come with biases based on our lived experiences, and which means we cannot create anything that's neutral. That's why you have all these libertarian assholes in who build tech. Oh, oh, I'm not, I'm going to be apolitical. You can't be apolitical. It's not that you're apolitical. It's just that all, you are in a room with a whole bunch of mediocre, unremarkable white dudes and you share the same politics. So you don't have to discuss politics. It's not in the absence of, it is that there's a collective community amongst what you believe. So people think, you know, Zuckerberg and Dorsey, all these people, no, no, no. This is not about them as people. I don't know who they are, but their businesses and their ideas and their decisions are very myopic and they cause harm that they don't even see. And they are not in a position to address it, to do anything. All you need to do is fund the folks who know what they're doing and step step out the way and shut up. Let's go down to the rest of the guiding principles. So tech is not neutral nor apolitical. That's the first one. The second one is intention without strategy is chaos. It creates chaos. The third one is lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And then once you get those three, you really start to understand why we must prioritize the most vulnerable. So who, what should be the basis of values in AI systems? Supremacy-free, coercion-free, discrimination-free, and exploitation-free. As we start making big picture plans for how we're going to do business next year, it might help to know that there are some things you can do to help mitigate the risks of this technology. Albert Fox Khan works with business and tech leaders on minimizing their risk and protecting their customers and users from surveillance. We do a lot of work with companies trying to talk about what privacy by design and, you know, rights protective products look like in, you know, a post-Obs America. When suddenly, you know, abortion access is a crime in many states and subject to the same warrants that have been used for years to harvest data from uh, tech companies, a lot of folks need to reevaluate what their commitments are to their clients. I think that companies don't want to become the long arm of abortion laws, immigration laws, but under our legal system, that is what's going to happen as long as they continue to collect data. A lot of companies assume more data is always better. 
But now increasingly, there's also a risk that goes up as you collect more data and you have more ability to search it. By partitioning data, by limiting your ability to do broad-based location searches, by limiting your ability to comply with some of these novel court orders, yes, you can make life a little harder for some of your engineers, but you're going to make your product a lot safer for its users. For example, we've talked a lot with uh, leaders at Google about limiting the way that location data is collected to prevent geofence warrants. We've talked to rideshare companies, mobility companies about how they collect our location data. We've talked to a lot of folks about how do you structure your backend data um, warehouses, whether it's you know changing the way that data is encrypted, changing the user interface for you know sysadmins in order to limit the ability for the government to come in and order you to search across your users. Information flows that in enable individuals to make better decisions, to choose how to go about their lives. That to me is fundamentally different than the surveillance capitalism and you know carceral surveillance that makes us all feel more and more confined in how we choose to go about our day. And that's really the fork in the road that we have with a lot of technology design. Are we going to continue to see people invest broadly in the design philosophy that the world is better off when a small number of corporate actors and small number of algorithmic systems can just monitor our every movement? Or are we going to invest in a society where even more people have more information to control their own lives? Moving forward, there's no way for you to know all of the ways your data collection strategies might be putting your business, employees, customers, and users at risk. So the best thing to do is either collect less data or find ways to mitigate your own access to it so that there isn't a way for police agencies or local governments to force you to give it up. Part of the solution also comes in creating new laws. We need privacy laws that take biometrics into account. For example, in 2008, Illinois enacted the Biometric Information Privacy Act of Illinois, one of the toughest privacy laws in the United States. It protects people from their biometric details being used without their consent, say, by the technology companies behind voice assistants or photo recognition services. The law also requires data minimization, or for companies to limit the data they collect just as the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation Law does. What's more, the law allows individuals, not just the state, to sue companies. Many experts cite it as the exemplar for privacy laws and regulations. It's on all of us to push for the type of legislation we want and vote for it when it's on the ballot. At the end of the day, we all have to do our part, whether that's pushing for legal change, social change, or business policy. But together, we can change the direction we're moving and make the future a brighter place. Thank you for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. This episode was produced and edited by Chloe Skye with research by Ashley Robinson and Aaron Daughtry and Interobang. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to all of our guests for lending their voices and ideas to help make the future a brighter place. I'm Kate O'Neill, and you've been listening to The Tech Humanist Show from KO Insights.